0: Well, good evening, everybody, and, and welcome once again for Me Too. Um, and um, we are um, delighted this evening to be welcomed as our guest, um, Lord Ed Vasey, um, for I think the first former cabinet minister we've had on our show, which we're very excited about, it, indeed. Um, before we start our interview with Ed, which we're going to actually commence um, the first half of the show um, this time, Um, Can I just remind anyone viewing that we um, encourage you instead of a a registration fee to make a donation to charity um, either to um, Brian May Save Me um, fund for the environmental um, crisis or for shelter for the housing crisis or um, one of the Ukrainian charities such as the GoFundMe page in relation to the war in Ukraine. Um, Ed, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Can you tell us where you're you're joining us from uh, this evening?
1: I'm joining from the classroom of my son's English teacher uh, because the reason that I've slightly skewed your normal running order is that he is um, hilariously doing an excerpt from Waiting for Godot at 6.15 and uh, this uh, puts me about 30 seconds away from the stage where he's performing it.
0: I see. Well, it's very generous of you to join us despite that. (laughs) Very important uh, commitment indeed. Um I would normally ask what are you freaking? But I guess if you were your son's school, it'd be a bit concerning if you were drinking anything. <laughs> yeah, they have a they have a complete alcohol ban at school. <laughs> it's very, very, very annoying. Uh, yes, indeed. So well um I'll briefly introduce our panel, then we'll get cracking with your interview given. So, um well Mary, you've kind of introduced yourself already. You look somewhere look like like you're somewhere different to usual today.
2: Good evening. Good evening. I'm I'm in Flynn in a ski resort in Geneva. Very nice. I hope you couldn't hear me. My internet connection, I don't think, is particularly brilliant, and I keep hearing the music coming on. But yeah. um, anyway, I'm here, and it's delightful to be here. Um, and my contribution to the theme—take
0: it or I—that's
2: the nearest I could get to Didcot.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, very good. Yeah, uh, my really th- theme th- is Didcot. The theme is Didcot. Talking which Sasha, you once had a case in Didcot. How did that go for you? Really well, Charlie. Thank you.
1: <laughs> I hope the local MP opposed you all the way.
0: Uh,
3: I think he might have, matched Successfully, too. <laughs> and how are you, Sasha? Where are you calling from? I'm very well. I'm in mean, Canterbury. I'm actually, it's a shame it's dark because I could show you the cathedral from the room I'm sitting in. So it's lovely. We just heard the bells calling people to evensong as they've done for about 900 years. Oh, very nice. Very nice indeed. <laughs> and Paul, lastly, have you got at home? Uh,
0: with Ursa's uh, wonderful artwork behind you. Uh, uh, absolutely, as well as Muhammad Ali over
4: my uh, my right shoulder, um, of my, my own personal guardian. Um, yeah, Charlie, I'm at home. I've been at places for everyone, the examination into the Greater Manchester strategic framework all day, um, which has been exciting. And I swear I didn't put a red tie on the basis that I've got a conservative politician. <laughs> <on>. <laughs> I'm sure you're the same, so apologies, Ed. Been... I that. <laughs> yeah. Not at all. Red is the, uh, the colour of uh, Town Football Club. Uh-huh. Sorry, what I meant to say was I deliberately put a red tie on on the basis of the uh, the theme of Didcock Town Football Club, having failed uh, to get a drink uh, from the the many micro breweries uh, in, in the area of Didcock, which are represented in the Lancashire uh, uh, version of Waitrose. So I've, I'm drinking something called Caribbean Rum Cask. Uh, by Innis and Gunn, which uh, promises to be every bit as repulsive as every other drink that I buy. <laughs> I you know. said, it looks, I'm sure it tastes as good as it looks. <laughs> Turkish red beer. Uh, and that's actually in deference to the fact I'm seeing uh, Sasha and Murrayfield on uh, the weekend. So that's that's the reason I got this. Nothing to do with... Well, the life you planning
1: Barrister's lead is extraordinary. Oh, it's so... Good. Now, let me pull this together. Although Abingdon is not part of the Wantage and Didcot constituency, Muhammad Ali visited Abingdon... 20 times because he was a great friend of a man called Paddy Monaghan who lived in the Saxton Road in Abingdon and my contribution to Didcot the theme of Didcot, which I'm now very pleased I chose because yes. I, literally, I literally got emailed yesterday <laughs> by this hilarious Blake who started the Didcot concert orchestra in retirement and just to show you what people are like at Didcot, during COVID he decided to photograph every single tree, oak tree in Didcot. And uh, there's a website, Dipcot Trees, and it turns out Dipcot has the second oldest yew tree in England, which is like a thousand years old or something, and a 360-year-old oak, neither of which I knew, despite being the MP there for 14 years.
0: Uh, Fancy that. I remember the railway, the the, Little Railway Museum was going as a child down for...
1: Yes. Well, no doubt these poor trees will be chopped down by some voracious planning barrister's application for more houses.
0: Well, let's just hope that the developers choose Sasha as their barrister, because he's got a 0 percent record in Didcot. Um On which note, Paul, gonna, you're, going to lead, um, you're going to lead our interview with, with Ed, so over to you to um, get us started. Yeah, and can I also stress, we also act for local planning authorities and
4: opposed developers as well, so we are the protectors of the trees. Um, Good. The independent bar. Uh, so, Lord, Lord Ed Vasey, I have to say, I've started to listen to Game of Thrones again. So when I, oh, I was yes. supposed to uh, my clerks earlier on, they said, who's on the show this evening? I said, it's Lord Vasey, at which they said, Lord Vasey of Winterfell. I said, no, of Didcot. So, <laughs> so I'm sorry if that's a letdown to anybody on the show. So you are a politician, a columnist, a former family barrister. You were a member of parliament for Wantage from 2005 to 2019. Apparently you're, you were part of the Notting Hill set, which is all quite exciting, which for me is mm-hmm. a fill. Uh, and you're currently a working member of the House of Lords, and you have the distinction of being the longest-serving longest, longest serving minister for culture uh, between 2010 and 2016, and that's the longest-serving since the post was created in 1964, serious feather in your cap. And you did such amazing things as a secure free entry to the National Museums, for which I personally absolutely applaud applaud you. Um, and during that, your time in office, apparently the creative industries grew at three times the, uh, the rate of the national economy, so there's lots and lots of feathers in your cap, uh, and you're also an honorary fellow of the Royal Institute of British Architects. So you, yes. So yes. I think you're the only person that I know as a politician that, that's had that sort of an accolade. Um, and you came to the attention of the planning world, and we immediately said we wanted to grab you because of a very recent letter to the Times uh, that you sent in the back end of last year, which I want to ask you about. So uh, Ed, Ed, welcome. Uh, thank thank you. you. So I just want, based upon your, uh, sorry, I should say, in terms of. Uh, this i've got a whole series of questions which in part relate to your former life and in part to your current life and partly around the the letter so what i want to know more generally from both your life as a minister and also your subsequent life how important do you think the arts are to national life and does the planning system do enough to encourage and further culture and the arts are we too obsessed with meeting
1: targets uh well um I think that uh, the arts are very important to our national life. They're very important in and of themselves, obviously. And I think COVID, uh, to a certain extent, showed that. Um, however, why do you want to take the definition of the arts? The fact that people couldn't go out and socialise and be together in these extraordinary cultural spaces, uh, whether it's the theatre or going to the cinema uh, or whatever, um, showed how important they are. And even in the kind of terrible life we led during COVID, the arts kind of saved us in our homes because of Paul Tucker not going mad because he could stream the entire series of 85 series of Game of Thrones, which of course was filmed in Northern Ireland, thanks to the television tax credit we brought in. Uh, But that's an aside. So the arts are incredibly important in and of themselves. They're important. uh, And in fact, the Game of Thrones point gives me a nice segue. They're very important economically. Uh, I think film and television have grown 15 times greater than the UK economy as a whole since we brought in the film and television tax credits, and they provide a huge boost to the economy, particularly obviously in the southeast. but actually they're pretty regional as well alongside things like video games, which I regard as an art form, and television. And then, of course, the arts themselves have massive impact on things like education. There are lots of kids, for example, who enjoy the arts themselves but also kids for whom kind of academic education may not be a forte, Uh, they often find the arts as a way of expressing themselves uh, and um, in the criminal justice system uh, and in health as well, you know, combating things like loneliness and so on. So in every aspect, the arts is important. Of course, in politics, the arts are worth a diddly squat of F all because politicians don't care about the arts, they don't fund the arts properly. And the fact that we've had 11 culture secretaries in 11 years kind of says it all. Uh, I've never really thought hard about the role of planning and the arts, except to say that clearly uh, key um, cultural venues play a massive role, in my view, and obviously in terms of urban regeneration and the importance uh, of placemaking. And whether you take something like Turner Contemporary in Margate and the kind of slow burn effect, which is now kind of, rocketing forward, regenerating Margate Margate or Hepworth-Wakefield. And even in good old Didcot, you know, we have the Cornerstone Arts Centre as part of the redevelopment of the centre of Didcot. So putting the arts and thinking about the arts um, in planning is, I think, very important, thinking about cultural venues. But it's also very important that it's carefully thought through. There are just as many missteps. You think about the public in West Bromwich, for example, uh, where people kind of plonk a cultural venue because, oh, we need a cultural venue, without thinking through the kind of community that uh, lives there and what they actually want uh, in terms of uh, venue and art spaces.
4: Thank you. Well, you beautifully allow me to segue into my, my next question, which is that um, the, the longest-serving culture minister, you over 70 months. Um, the, the planning world's just said farewell to Lucy Fraser, who is the shortest-serving housing minister. Uh, she's the 15th housing minister in 10 years despite the fact that we were in the middle of a housing crisis. So based on your experience, Ed, what are your thoughts on the value of continuity of occupation of a
1: ministerial office? Well, I remember talking to Grant Shouts when he became the housing minister, I think in 2010, and I'd be banging on to him. I think he was the housing shadow housing minister about the importance of quality and, and design. And he kind of, uh, he flattered me one day in the voting lobby by saying, you know, I've had a think about what you've been saying to me. Like, you know, there's been a light bulb moment and I realized the importance of design. But of course... Uh, You know, he came and went. I mean, he's still obviously in frontline politics. He's had how many, God knows how many different jobs. Um, And it is depressing. It is depressing. Um, You know, I stuck at the job because I loved the job. It's it's the only job I ever wanted to do. And I was buggered if I was going to get moved on and do any other job. And luckily, I had a good enough relationship with David Cameron that I could stay put. Um, And also, as I said earlier, to a certain extent, the arts aren't seen as very important. So nobody was actually trying to tear me out of office but you know you end up making so many contacts really understanding the issues knowing as much if not more than your officials and I think the quality of a good minister without wishing to sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet is to be able to listen and engage and you will know that you know over time you you kind of sort the wheat from the chaff you realize you know Paul Tucker he talks a lot of sense he's the sort of guy I want to listen to Sasha White not so much Uh, and you know, after six months, a year, you, you kind of tweak that and then you're off, you've gone. No, thank you for that. Um, so moving away from your
4: former life to your current life as a a working member of the house of Lords, so the leveling up and regeneration bill, which is hugely important to the world in which uh, we all inhabit is about to go through its committee stages in the house of Lords. Um, so, and there are a number of very prominent, very, very informed members of of the house of Lords in the planning world. How important is the, the House of Lords in scrutinising legislation of this type and bringing an
1: informed, non partisan eye uh, to bear upon that legislation? Well, I, I can't talk about the specific legislation itself because I'm no. not uh, actually involved with it. But I do think that the law, yeah, the minute you join the House of Lords, of course, you become a member of the House of Lords trade union and you spend um, a lot of time telling people how absolutely marvellous the House of Lords is when a year before you would have quite happily seen it abolished. Um, And there are, uh, you know, hereditary peers, weirdly, they do a lot of the work, for example. So people who want to get rid of hereditaries, they're probably right in principle, but in terms of how it functions day to day, they do a hell of a lot of the work. The key thing about the House of Lords and the reason why I think it works well, albeit I can't justify intellectually or in principle, as it were, is that you do get people who know what they are talking about, who are passionate about it, who are, generally speaking, non-partisan, Uh, you know, they will vote against the government if they're Labour and for the government if they're Tory on kind of routine stuff. Generally speaking, the amendments being put down in the House of Lords are amendments that people feel very strongly about, uh, they know about, they've taken soundings about, uh, and they will generally have cross-party support. And people will be putting them down because they generally think it makes the legislation better. So the House of Lords... Um, as a revising chamber, I think does play a very good role. And I think in the unwritten constitution process of osmosis, whatever you want to call it, um, the uh, commons does respect, or the government and government departments do respect well-crafted amendments that are well-motivated, that have cross-party support in the lords and take them seriously and look again at the legislation.
4: Yeah, I I tend to agree. It's not the system that we would invent if we were starting afresh, but As a system, it works pretty well because there isn't the constituency behind the people that want to speak from the heart and based upon knowledge. Um, So thank you for that. So um, moving then to to the reason why we we wanted to nab you on the show. So you wrote a letter to The Times uh, last year where you expressed profound regret at the decision back in 2011 um, at a time you were in government to withdraw funding from CABE, um, the Commission for Architecture and the Built Environment. Um, And you also pointed out the policy exchanges proposal for a school of place, was essentially a reworking of Cabe under a different guise. So firstly, why did you feel motivated to go public with your thoughts on that? Brackets, very powerfully written.
1: Well, I couldn't quite believe, you know, I mean, politics moves in fashions, uh, you know, and what goes around comes around. Well, I mean, like putting trade back in with business, which has uh, just been announced, you know, was, was exactly what, what the position was in 2010. We had the UK Trade and Investment as part of the Department of Business so Everything that goes around comes around. And um, I got to know Kay pretty well because I also did this job for four years in opposition. And uh, so as a constituency MP, uh, I would call on Kay uh, and they they took me to developments in my constituency. They actually took me to developments around the country. And it was just such a thoughtful process to walk around and develop with them. And they would literally kind of say, and this is where the developer ran out of money, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Look at these grotty kind of one-bedroom flats poked at the end of the development. Um, But look what the developer's done here. Isn't this clever? Isn't this thoughtful? And you just, again, it goes back to my point about longevity. You pick this stuff up. And so when I saw the Policy Exchange paper, I just thought, you know, we've been here before. And I read it before I sent the letter because, of course, I couldn't believe there was no reference to CABE uh, in the paper itself.
4: Hey, so this is where we just buskied. Um, so, so what Ed would have said as he's, about- <laughs> <laughs> I
0: think, well, I think our IT guru Rob, who, who's, um, um, can you hear me now? Hear me now, oh, exactly. got audio only with a super. I think he's
1: he sent me to audio only uh, with a photograph that people insist was taken twenty years ago, but it was actually <laughs> taken only last year. I've just gone downhill pretty rapidly.
4: Um, <laughs> If you saw so, everybody's LinkedIn photographs on this call, they're all from 10 years ago. Don't <laughs> worry
1: about it. You're a good company, Ed. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, if you can hear me, I'll just say very quickly because I've got two bars on my 4G. So it's obviously the host has obviously worked out videos too much for the iPad. Um, <laughs> uh, so Kay, uh, you know, did this brilliant job of just kind of, it was kind of nudge politics before it became fashionable. You know, design review, engagement, uh, an organization that kind of encourage developers and councils to think hard about the quality of the design of developments that were being uh, put in. And it was a very, very good thing. And it infuriated me for two reasons. A, Policy Exchange hadn't referenced CABE at all. And B, their version of a school of beauty was really kind of culture wars by the back door, because really what they're saying is, let's have lots of Georgian architecture. Let's have a school of beauty that imposes a standard that is uh, liked by old, fogey Tories, which I resolutely uh, oppose. Um, But at the same time, I also accept, you know, I wish I'd thought harder to save Cade. Cade wasn't technically in my remit when I was the minister. It was another minister's responsibility, and we were all having to make cuts, and we were all having to make difficult decisions. And We managed to sort of get Cade kind of folded in with the design council but I'm not sure it's really worked or had the same status as it used to have Um, and but at the same time it's difficult for one minister with one set of portfolios to kind of barge into another minister and say I think you're making the wrong uh, decision Uh, and the irony was that of course I knew what CAVE was and I knew what it did because I'd I'd got to know them in opposition and unfortunately my colleague uh, hadn't and as far as he was concerned he just had to make some savings and crack on Uh, and I do wish you know I do wish that we could get back to, you know, we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, in the subsequent questions, you know, get back to, you know, I think it was a great thing that the Blair government kind of recognised how important design principles were, were prepared to put their money behind a quango, our money behind a quango, and, you know, kind of put down a marker to say this stuff matters. I think I think you're certainly right in relation to that. The one thing that
4: that struck me from Cade was was it was such a, a well-respected body. Now that might be because it was the successor to the Royal Fine Arts Commission, which was founded in the 1920s to try and ensure that we have improved the world. So it predated um, the, the planning system, but it also published some fantastic publications. There's one called Design Appeal, which says, "Don't issue re- reasons for refusal which are meaningless. Say what's actually wrong with the development." Uh, I wish to goodness that that was fa- that found its way into to guidance. So, do do you think that that there is merit in having a a, a well respo- respected body such as a Cade Mark II being brought forward to assist in terms of policy making and decision taking?
1: Yeah, I definitely do. I think it's about uh, you know that was I think the beauty of Cave. It was kind of light touch, but it was just a strong signal from government. Uh, it wasn't unwieldy. It wasn't gobbling up gazillions of cash uh it didn't have draconian powers but it was there and it was a constant and as somebody who's just put on the chat you know over 10 years it accumulated again a great depth of knowledge and expertise uh i think broadly speaking had widespread support i think i re- you recall you know good support from developers as well as from yeah. uh planners and local authorities so it was a huge error i fess up to it uh it was a mistake for us to get rid of it um so in 2013 mindful
4: of Cabe's demise in 2011 you asked the the um well world famous architect sir terry farrell to undertake a review of of, uh, architecture and the built environments and to report upon design outputs in the planning system um uh, uh, it's been 10 years since i read it and i have to say it's well worth a read through again i was looking at it last evening but it's got a strong emphasis upon education um, as the value of the pl- of planning properly so as to create a sense of place. Have, have we really missed a trick in the last 10 years by overly politicizing the planning process rather than properly educating future decision takers and also the public?
1: Uh, yes, we have. I mean, I say that's a really shrewd way of putting it, Paul, if I can say that in a deeply patronizing way. Because I think you have kind of put your finger on it, which is that it's this deeply adversarial process at almost every stage. Um, And we throw around acronyms like NIMBY and bananas and everything. Um, And, you know, I know as an MP that uh, the initial reaction to any announcement of a planning development is that you as the MP are expected to oppose it tooth and nail. (laughs) And there's no middle way. And I think the missing bit is this kind of, Community understanding that development can be a massive asset to your town. Now, obviously, there is there is a default position where people just say, "No." I, I remember a neighbour in the village I live in in, in, in my constituency home, you know, running across the road, to say, "You know, the bloke with the field next door to me wants to build a house," and you just think, "Well, you know, <laughs> please, somebody's got to build a house at some point in this village." Yeah. Um, but it was next door to that bloke, and he wasn't having any of it. Because uh, he liked looking out on the field, understand. It. Anyway, uh, Terry Farrell, I got to I got to know Terry. I can't remember how I got to know him, and um, I asked him one day, you know, will you come down to my constituency and do a public meeting to talk through development in the, in a particular town in my constituency and see? I'd love to see the reaction. So he came to Wallingford, which has a sort of medieval street plan. Wallingford Castle dismantled by Cromwell. Um, And lots of developers chafing at the bit to build additional houses, uh, which Wallingford needs. Uh, And he just—it was a mesmerising evening for me. It was, you know, he talked through uh, how they, you know, Wallingford was surrounded by marshes. Therefore, why the villages around Wallingford were where they were, because they were on the higher ground above the marshes. How Wallingford had grown organically over, you know, five, six hundred years, and of course, by the end of it. He had people eating out of his hand and kind of rather enthused and excited uh, by this. And to be fair to the Tory government, we had these things, didn't we? I can't, I can't remember what they're called now. The kind of community plans that parishes were meant to sign off where they, effectively the grassroots um, in the community said, this is where we would like our houses to be. But anyway, he had the media. I, I'm under no that if Terry had then announced the next day that he was going to build a housing estate according to these principles that he wouldn't have been opposed tooth and nail by people who didn't want any more houses. But it was just an instructive evening for me uh, about how you can engage communities and not, not everyone can get a Terry Farrell to come to their community and talk like that. Um, and then he did this report, and it's a good example of you know we how little money we had at DCMS. And effectively, Terry had to pay for that report. I mean, he did an amazing job. I mean, I think he spent 18 months on it. And he must have had about 200 experts consulting and engaging and he came up with a whole host of ideas, and like all good reports that you do for the government, if you if you ever get asked to do reports for government on policy, you know, try and make as many of the recommendations industry-led, as it were. Uh, you know, so he came up with the idea of des- urban design rooms that people could visit. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a great report, and I'm pleased to hear what you say about it, it being worth a read 10 years on, because, again, it goes back to this kind of policy exchange uh, report, you know, none of these ideas are new they've all been around and in some cases implemented for years and years and years we it's like so many areas of policy we know exactly what needs to be done we just need the political will and passion to make it happen
4: um thank you so much ed um i'm going to just defer to my fellow panelists and first of all can we go to the uh the geneva-based uh, jury uh bonsoir mary who's having a thank
2: you very much so Ed I'm a trustee of Design Southeast, um, a charity whose purpose is to promote excellence in the built environment and they offer um, independent independent design reviews, training uh, local authorities, for example, in assessing uh, design uh, and producing design codes. Um, and they can also act as um, and they do act as independent facilitators. Uh, helping to bring um, communities uh, around the table with developers. Um, And my question, having uh, given my lovely charity a a big plug, um, is this, given the lack of urban designers at many local authorities, do you think that such organisations have a a role to play in securing sustainable built environments?
1: Yeah, 100%. I mean, uh, again, it's a kind of hand mouth existence, I suspect, for design. Indeed. Southeast, but Design Southeast is, a, is an echo of what Cabe did, and it's uh, local and localish, as locally as you can get in the Southeast. And um, we need more Design Southeast around the country, and uh, it's hard work and sweat to make these things happen and get them off the ground and raise the money to run them. But yeah, everyone, yeah. you know, I'm talking to experts here in terms of not just the people questioning me, but the participants in this chat. And, um, they will know better than me in terms of being local authority planners or whatever, ha- what access they have to kind of peer review and so on. I mean, people are very, 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 fresh they have very few resources for have these incoming developers uh, with oodles of cash pushing them. And, um, but, the, you know, the, you can fi- yeah. if you can find the time and space to have uh, independent people review and make recommendations, that's got to be a good thing.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Mary. Um, Charlie,
4: you have a link to Policy Exchange, so it may fall to you to uh, to pick up the cudgel a, a, a little bit in relation to what what they do. Do you have a question?s For Ed?
0: Uh, thanks, Paul. Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, Ed, you probably don't remember, but I first met you when I was the um, the very first intern at Policy Exchange back in two thousand and two. I think it was or two thousand and three. Um, and how amazing! Well, yeah. haven't you done well for yourself, Charlie? But Nick something called Nick Bowles. Whatever happened to him? It's Michael Gove on the board. Um, and a young lad called David Cameron who was a, a backbench MP who was a big friend of it so yeah, we met many many years ago and of course you've got you've had links with policy exchange yourself and they were arguably at least the birthplace of what might be called sort of modern localism as as we now know it but do you think and I've I, I made some inferences from your answers already do you think that localism has now gone a bit too far? Well good question um,
1: yeah. no I don't, I don't think it has really actually I think it's kind of good in parts and it's not really been seen through. I mean, I, I, you know, we've, we've got these kind of mayors now and, um, it is interesting this cause it was, you're right, Charlie, it was the birthplace of localism and, and the, the, the Cameron team have this very, uh, very passionate, uh, focus on it led by people like Nick Herbert. Um, and this idea, for example, of elected police and crime commissioners, uh, and elected mayors. And we've done some of it in parts, uh, you know, and I think you see Andy Burnham in Manchester or Steve Rotherham in Liverpool or Andy Street in the West Midlands. I think they're a good thing, elected mayors. Uh, and I I'd still kind of broadly support police and crime commissioners, though I do accept. Uh, I spoke to an interesting ex-chief constable the other day. He said, you know, the big mistake of police and crime commissioners, they stop police reform in the sense you could have um, merged quite a lot of police forces. Um But, of course, now police crime commissioners defend their empires. Uh, But I like it. I like this kind of sense of accountability and uh, an individual that people can kind of, the buck stops here. Uh, So I don't think we have gone far enough with localism by any stretch of the imagination. And we certainly have never tackled localism in terms of money and raising money and finances um, uh, and and in how communities can actually uh, raise their own funds and direct their own funds in meaningful ways to make meaningful Impacts on their communities. So I don't think we've really touched the sides on localism, actually.
0: Thanks. thanks. But I think you're right in the sense the, app, the political appetite for localism
1: seems to have completely disappeared.
0: Interestingly, Bristol, where I have now, I understand that um, the electorate have, have recently voted to abolish their mayor, mayor for reasons I'm not entirely clear. Uh, oh, really? Well, they had a great mayor who was, as you know, an architect, George Ferguson. Yes, yes. And whose no. uh, sig- signature was red trousers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> LMFRT as opposed to red ties. uh back to you paul thanks ed that was really fascinating to hear that uh, uh defense of localism
4: yeah and and that it, it, i think you probably cast yourself in the role of matador and i i have the ball to send to towards you in relation to that um so chris do you have a question
5: uh and try and resist the temptation to reopen localism yes uh no i'm, I'm all in favor of mayors, but i think if you're gonna have a you know you're gonna have that role then it's got to come with not just uh, rights, but responsibility. Responsibility is what's been missing in a lot of localism, uh, in my opinion. Anyway, I'm really sorry I'm late. I've um, I've been doing the day job uh, and cross-examining, so forgive me for that, Ed. Um, my question is about the new changes to the um, MPPF, and uh, the government has introduced these. We're in the middle of a consultation, and particularly in terms of your area of interest, um design it's quite clear the government wants to improve design but they set a threshold test of beauty that buildings are to be beautiful and and i just wanted your views on that really how realistic is that um because not everywhere can look like blenheim palace can it
1: well as i say i mean i think you know this this word beauty is, is a loaded word now but we've got some um, particularly now we've got culture wars and i think um you know, a better word might be quality, which I, uh, you know, except might not be a particularly accurate word, but what, what one is talking about is thoughtful, uh, you know, carefully planned development where the buildings are of great design quality, uh, but one person's beauty is, is, is not somebody else's. I mean, I remember Oliver Letwin talking about beauty when we were in opposition in the early noughties and he was sort of widely ridiculed but he shouldn't have been because it was nice to see a front bench spokesman talk about beauty but as i say i think beauty has a loaded term and i think beauty to a lot of tories means poundbury which to my mind is not a beautiful development by any stretch of the imagination it is well laid out i remember going round Poundbury and thinking if i take anything away from this it's the thoughtfulness that's gone into you know the walkability as it were, and the livability of the spaces. But the buildings, to my mind, were absolutely hideous and pastiche, and I can't bear that. Whereas you see some of these, I mean, I remember a particular development in Cambridge where the bu- buildings were, to my mind, beautiful, but they were quality. They were brick. They were had a modern vernacular, but they were livable. And um, I, I think anything that encourages that has to be a good thing. But, you know, you remember, I mean, God rest his soul, and he was a great man. Roger Scruton was put in charge as the beauty commissioner. We know why. Uh, because Tories think that a car park should look like a Georgian
5: manor house. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. 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 Now, you're absolutely right with quality. Couldn't agree with you more. That is a word that's used and one that's much more, much more sensible. So thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Chris. And uh, toasting you with my
4: Scottish uh, red <laughs> beer sash. Um, you have a question for Ed.
3: I do, I do. Um, Ed, what I was going to ask you is is let's look into the future and obviously there's a huge debate going on in your party between those that want to see restraint embedded in the MPBF and those that obviously accept the proposition that the housing need must be met. And I just wanted to ask you from your very close Pulse and at the centre of the debate. Who do you think is going to win over the next six months in the context of the proposed changes to the MPBF?
1: Uh, I think it'll end up being a stalemate and a fudge is my instinct, and um, people kick the can down the road. I mean, because it is a, it's an impossible circle for politicians to square because there isn't the leadership there to push it through. To be fair, there was a big push for. Uh, increased housing. There has been a big push for increased housing under this government. Of course, it was a complete reverse ferret when we came in in 2010 because we'd spent the previous five years slagging off the Labour government for imposing housing targets on local communities. And then when we came in, of course, we totally understood as we had secretly all along that we needed more housing. And uh, there will be some kind of fudge where, in theory, the kind of banner headline will be more houses and the uh underlying trend will be, again, more restrictions and uh, make it as difficult as possible to build uh, houses, partly because of the cost of land.
3: Uh, and just very quickly, what's the play you're about to see?
1: Are we about to see Waiting for Godot, Mr. Piri? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Waiting for Godot. Yeah, <laughs> but an excerpt. <laughs>
4: <laughs> look, look do, do you know what? I was going to finish off on a quotation from Waiting for Godot because you said that at the very start, um, but I'm going to ditch the quotation I was going to since you did say it at the start to my goldfish friend. Um, and the quotation I'll use is I- I'm like that. Either I forget right
1: away or I never forget.
0: You're on fire today, Paul.
1: There's somebody who's put in that, uh, somebody's made it clear that I should read uh, The Spectator on how King Charles saved Cornwall. Let me just make it absolutely clear that I'm a big fan of King Charles and indeed the Prince of Wales as he was in terms of uh, so many of the initiatives he's um, pushed forward uh, and the causes his champion for 50 years. I just think his uh, the Poundbury development and the kind of obsession with of slight pastiches is, is wrong. And I, I think when he described the monstrous carbuncle again, I think he was uh, wrong on that. But he's right on many, many other things. Uh, it's too difficult to to better that.
4: Safe to point out that uh, as as a long-standing QC, when we all became KCs, uh, I'm now thoroughly sick to death of the sunshine band gags that we've all been suffering. <laughs> yeah, I'd thought about experience. that. So, uh, I, so <laughs> apart from that, yes, I, I I agree with you. Ed, listen, thank you so much for your time, and I hope it goes really well for for your your uh, your young lad uh, later on this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much.
0: Yes. May he may he metaphorically break a leg. Um, and I hope it really well. And <laughs> thanks again for, for joining us. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Back to you, Charlie. Thanks, Paul. So we're going in reverse order today um, in the sense of having our interview first, now the case report. So I'm first up, I'm going to tell you briefly about the, the Tate Modern, uh judgment in the Supreme Court um, issued uh, a few days ago uh, on the 1st of February. Um, very high profile case, which I imagine many of you have read about in the press. Um, on the uh, the top floor of, of part of Tate modern known as the blavatnik building uh in Bankside, South Bank of London there's a public viewing gallery uh which is a very popular visitor attraction and um over the um over the period in, in question some five and a half million people uh, have visited the Tate uh modern and visited that balcony uh, per year um several hundred thousand of whom uh, visited the viewing gallery uh, and the um the owner-occupants of the flats, only about 34 metres away um, from the viewing gallery, um, complained uh, to the High Court of a nuisance caused by uh, people um, who had been not just overlooking um, the flats, but taking photographs, waving, peering into the flats, etc. And they claimed that was a, a, a nuisance and were seeking either injunction or uh, a financial um, award of damages uh, to compensate them for that nuisance they lost in the High Court and the Court of Appeal um, for, for different reasons. Um, the Court of Appeal um, felt in particular that there was um, a, such a sort of public interest defence offence uh, as, as well as the fact that overlooking as the Court of Appeal saw it, no matter how oppressive, couldn't um, count as a, a nuisance. Uh, but uh, the Supreme Court felt that overlooking, in fact, uh, was an unfair way of characterizing the interference with the, the various properties, Bearing in mind people were waving, I say, and hearing in and causing all sorts of disturbance. And um, and, the, and the Supreme Court went to take apart the analysis of both of the um, the courts below in relation to uh, whether there was a, uh, a defense to the claim nuisance on the basis that it was either a sort of reasonable use of the land or that somehow that these issues um, were more a matter of planning. And it's on the latter in relation to planning that I wanted to touch upon, because though it's principally a judgment relating to property law and nuisance, um, the um, the Supreme Court touched upon uh, one aspect of the Court of Appeals judgment relating to planning law. Uh, The Court of Appeal had suggested that um, planning law, or or as as the Supreme Court said, the planning laws and regulations uh, would be a better Uh, means of controlling inappropriate overlooking than private law actions of nuisance and that was part of the school of appeals uh, analysis Uh, and uh, the supreme court held that was that was wrong they said that um, whilst both um, uh, both may sometimes be relevant um, planning law and private law actions for nuisance have different functions and unlike uh, private law actions for nuisance, where specific person or persons are complaining about unreasonable interference with their private law right to enjoy their land and their property, planning law was different. Planning law, that the Supreme Court said, doesn't have as its object uh, preventing or compensating violations of private rights in the use of land. The purpose of planning law is control uh, the relevant land of public interest. And the court went on to so say the objectives which a planning authority may take into account in formulating policy and deciding whether to grant planning permission uh, are open ended and may include a broad range of environmental, social, and economic considerations. Uh, and whilst the planning authority may consider the potential effect of a new building or use of land on the amenity of neighbouring properties, there's no obligation to give that factor any particular weight. Um, and, and the Supreme Court went on to go and say well, that was demonstrated on the facts of the case because. Um, no consideration had in fact been given to overlooking in the planning uh, decision making for the extension of the tape, which included the uh, the viewing gallery. Uh, overall, the Supreme Court felt that the case for nuisance had been made out. They decided that it wasn't appropriate for them as an appeal court to decide whether a injunction should be granted or whether financial remedy should be granted. They sent that back down to the High Court for consideration. So what does that mean for planners? Um... Well, if anything, the Supreme Court um, gave greater emphasis than it had done in the past, albeit it had in a recent, recent-ish case called Coventry and Owens. civilly said that um, uh, these sorts of matters were principally for nuisance actions rather than planning. But it gave greater emphasis than in, in the past that uh, planning is more about the broader public considerations uh, set out in the judgment than about impacts on individual um, properties, uh, particularly into individual privacy, individual amenity, etc. So, if anything, although it's still permissible for the Supreme Court's judgment for local planning authorities and the Secretary of State inspectors on appeal to have regard to um, impact on private amenities, they do say it's an irrelevant consideration. If anything, yeah, there's a greater emphasis likely to be the case in, in future, a greater emphasis on that being a matter of private law regulation between the occupiers of particular properties and the, and the developer itself, the owner of the development itself. Greater emphasis on that being a matter of a private law and a lesser emphasis on that being a matter of a planning law. Not an event of consideration, but probably more now a matter for private law actions. So that's the Supreme Court's judgment. And now, Mary, you're going to tell us about a Whitley case.
2: Yes, this is an unsuccessful appeal by Whitley Parish Council from the judgment of Mr Justice Lane who dismissed their application for judicial review of a decision by North Yorkshire County Council to grant permission for the extraction and export of pulverized fuel ash from lagoons at Gale Common, uh, an ash disposal site. Um, A site, in other words, which had previously been worked uh, and was partly restored at the time of the application. And our regular viewers will recognize perhaps um, this case because we've covered it. uh, We covered the decision of Mr. Justice Lane in the the court below. The central issue was whether the the, um, County Planning Authority had been led into an error by the planning officer's advice in a committee report. About the weight to be given to a development plan policy on the best practicable environmental option. Now, at the time that the development plan policy in question, policy seven three, was formulated, there was in national waste policy a concept of best practicable best practicable environmental option. But in nineteen uh, sorry in twenty fourteen the MPPS um, and the national uh, planning policy changed and that was no longer part of national policy. And because of that, the officer said in his report that he would not give any weight to the part of the policy which related to this best practicable environmental option test because it wasn't consistent with the MPPF, and this is the 2019 version, at paragraph 170 and and paragraph 180. Now, the appellant argued that the inconsistency of a development plan policy with subsequent national planning policy does not of itself, as a matter of law, justify the view that no weight could be given to the development plan policy. Well, Sir Keith Limblon, gave, giving the judgment uh, in the Court of Appeal, had no truck with that decision. And he started by r- reminding us all of the city of Edinburgh case, quoting Lord Hope, uh, in, in where Lord Hope had said that some provisions of the development plan may become outdated as national policies change. So it's a fairly well-trodden path, this. And that secondly, the weight to be given was a matter for the decision maker, uh, and it's the function of an officer's report to give to express their own planning judgment, and that was all that the officer was doing here in suggesting that he wasn't giving any weight to that part of the development policy which he felt was inconsistent with later national NPPF guidance, and then finally applying uh, the case of Mansell, um, officers' reports which were not significantly misleading on a material matter, do not found uh, er 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 errors of law, and hence the appeal was dismissed. Thank you very much. Back to you, Charlie. Thank you, you, Mary. And, um,
0: Chris, I'm in Bristol. You're going to tell us about a case in Bristol. I am indeed.
5: I am indeed. uh, This is the case uh, surrounding Bristol Airport, and um, it's the Bristol Airport Action Network Coordinating Committee. Uh, and uh, it's against the decision of the Secretary of State, it was an appeal decision um, and uh, interested parties were both Bristol Airport and North Somerset Council. Now the appeal was into the proposed expansion of Bristol Airport, the um, first interested party applied, uh, Bristol Airport applied to North Somerset for Outline Planning permission, and the amendments of four existing planning conditions which together would enable The capacity of Bristol Airport to rise by 2 million passengers a year, an increase of about 20% on their numbers. Now, North Somerset Council refused the application. Uh, There was an appeal. The appeal was heard under Section 78 as a conventional appeal and was heard by a panel of three inspectors over the course of some nine weeks uh, in the summer and autumn of uh, 2021. And in February last year, uh, the panel of inspectors allowed uh, the airport's appeal. The claimant appeared at the inquiry and the broad thrust of their claim was that the appeal should be dismissed because the expansion of Bristol Airport would have a serious and unacceptable effect on climate change. And uh, they had led evidence of the inquiry um, by a uh, professor, Kevin Anderson from Manchester University, an expert in climate change and various other experts from the aviation industry. In the decision uh, that was issued by the inspectors, the first main issue debated in the inquiry was the impact of the proposed developments. Uh, on greenhouse gas emissions and the ability of the UK to meet its climate change obligations. And what's really interesting about this is the fact that um, you've got a situation where we're dealing with conventional uh, planning concepts and then you're dealing with climate change and the emissions from um, aircraft. And, And how do the two relate? Because it's clearly the case that it will increase greenhouse emissions And in this case, the council had a policy specifically concerned with addressing climate change. Policy CS1 was a key development plan policy, and uh, that policy was concerned with um, addressing climate change. And there was a specific policy, CS23, which related specifically to the airport. So uh, how are these two concepts resolved? Well, um, what the uh, inspectors decided is there's three important points to make, they said, in relation to this issue uh, of climate change and carbon budgets. Firstly, although the approach to net zero and carbon budget is a material consideration, so material to planning decisions, um, the Climate Change Act places an obligation on the Secretary of State, not local decision-makers, not local councils, to prepare policies and proposals with a view to meeting the carbon budgets. Secondly, as advised in the MPPF, there is an assumption that controls which are in place, will work, so other statutory regimes, and including um, ministers' obligations under the Climate Change Act. And finally, and consequent on the previous points, um, the council's position that the grants of planning permission in this case would breach the Climate Change Act and be unlawful was not accepted. Um, and that the reason for that was that um, the uh, airline industry has been uh, engaged in and subject to an emissions trading scheme, the ETS. And there's a further trading scheme that's been created. And they are uh, creating, in effect, offsetting uh, proposals to deal with the carbon emissions arising from the plane. So everybody's trip to European cities and summer holidays is fine. We will be continuing to use aircraft, but it's all to be offset through this scheme. And so what the um, panel decided of inspectors was that scheme is the way to address this issue, not to refuse planning permission for the expansion of airports, because it's also government policy to use existing airports to expand the capacity and our insatiable appetite to fly off um, all over the world. So um, there are a number of different grounds, but in the time available, I'll just say that what the... um, uh, what this really involved was an attack on the panel's reasoning and their handling of policies CS1 and CS23. And the inspectors took the view that they had given adequate reasons in relation to addressing climate change and carbon reduction, and that it was um, really a um, a matter of discretion for the decision-maker. Because although CS1 was concerned with climate change, it had a number of specific objectives and the reduction in aviation flight wasn't one of them. So it didn't have to be uh, something that was specifically addressed, albeit that it was addressed through this um, carbon offsetting proposal. So the challenge was unsuccessful. There were various other grounds, um, but uh, CS1 didn't have anything specific to say about aviation emissions, and that's what um, the panel of inspectors concluded was the basis upon which the inspector's reasoning was uh, adequate and um just to say they have sought the action group have sought permission to appeal to the court of appeal
0: thanks chris and then finally uh, over to you sasha tell us about the armstrong case
3: yes thank you Charlie. um we are having the gremlins tonight aren't we <laughs> in terms of the wi-fi um yes i'm going to tell you about the armstrong case which is actually a really quite interesting case because it relates to section 73 and of those legal eagles amongst everyone listening will know Section 73 is about applying for effectively to do a development without complying with a condition or conditions previously imposed. And in this case, this involves a replacement dwelling in Cornwall. As you can see, defendants with the Secretary of State because it's an appeal decision and Cornwall Council. And before Rob takes it down, it's interesting. Look at in person. Who needs a barrister, eh? Mr Michael Armstrong with the Cornish spelling on Michael. Um now what you have there is a in-person challenge to an inspector's decision because what the inspector did, Mr Armstrong had a permission for a dwelling and it was subject to a condition requiring compliance with various plans. Mr Armstrong then came along with a section seventy three application seeking not to develop in compliance with Condition 10, which had all the plans and said what the development of the house should look like. And from the judgment of um, James Strawn, we can see that the original house was apparently modernist and the new house was an alpine-style lodge. Now, the inspector in refusing the appeal under Section seventy-three under 78, having it Cornwall refused it and Cornwall refused it. And effectively, the question that the inspector dealt with was, um, hang on a minute, this is too great a variation from what the original consent was for. So uh, um, James Strawn, sitting as a deputy, High Court judge, had to decide whether Section 723 has some form of uh, restriction relating to whether some kind of in essence, uh, arbitrary judgment whether what was being applied for was beyond what was contemplated at the original consent. Um, the judge held that there, what you couldn't imply some kind of test of extent of variation from the original consent. That wasn't part of the legislative framework and wasn't in the wording of section 73. So I think for our viewers, it's quite interesting that it was there was wrong to apply a test or was it was the section 73 application or did it amount to a fundamental variation of what had been applied for so section 73 is not restricted to some form of minor variation which so it's quite a seminal and important decision well i don't know i'm i'm not as assiduous as chris i don't know whether mr michael armstrong is going to the court of appeal on the point or not but i think it's a really interesting decision um, on relation to the powers of section 73. Thank you, Charlie.
0: Thanks, Sasha. We thought about it. We'll give her the case about the Alpine Villa to Mary, who is in an Alpine Villa. Uh,
2: no, uh, uh, we'll uh, have to sanction it. But, but if she's in Flame, there are a lot of Alpine Villas. <laughs> no, no. I'm in a wonderful um, concrete um, building designed by Marcel Brewer, huh. Bauhaus. Very nice. Very nice. I thought I'd just get that in since the whole thing is bad design. Indeed. Well, well enjoy. Well,
0: thank you very much indeed, people, for watching. Uh, thank you, Paul, for uh, leading our interview with Lord Vazio of Jim And um, uh, we will see you in two weeks' time. Uh, good evening. Don't forget your charity donations. Bye. Thanks very much. Abianto, Mary.